welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Happy Father's Day to you. Wealth gets measured primarily in the Western world by money, but Scripture actually tells us to measure our wealth by our families, which means if you have children, men, you are a wealthy man. Even if you're sitting here going, well, of course I am. All my investment is in them kids. Yeah, it really is. Would you, if you are a father, a grandfather, an adoptive father, in some way you have invested in the life of a, a member of the younger generation, would you are, stand, men, and let's thank you uh, and recognize a wealthy man. And we have some gifts for you today. Here's my first gift for you. There's no photo booth. <laughs> See? All right, there you go. Yeah, all the guys, like, all the moms are like, oh, let's take a picture. And all the guys are like, I don't even know if I want to come today. We are giving you the gift of not having to have your picture taken. Okay? The other gift we're giving you on your way out today is in this little box. And I thought, you're going to have to get one to find out what it is. But no, I want to, I want to show you what it is because this is actually going in my truck today. It's, it's a flashlight. And these, I mean, these are nice, man. Our staff really, really went all out for this. So just as a way of saying thank you today, I uh, hope your family takes you out and treats you nice. But we have a couple of drawings, and I have a young lady who's going to come up here and help me with this today. Uh, when you came into the, the building, you should have been given a, a registration card. So we're going to draw, um, well, we're supposed to draw for two of these, right? Um, we have three today, though, because, and I'll, I'll tell you why that is in just a moment. Guys, I'm going to use microphone two for just a second because I am told, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, that because this is Father's Day, you have a dad joke for us. Is that true? Okay. <laughs> Hang on just a second. Let me. Microphone two, gentlemen. It, it might be. It may very well be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure what's happening up there. Let's do this. Why do dads always bring an extra pair of socks when they go golfing? I don't know. Why do dads always bring an extra pair of socks when they go golfing? In case they get a hole in one. That's. Can I use that? If my children roll their eyes at me, can I blame you? Is that all right? All right. Here we go. Who we got? That is Jim. Bergeron, come on up, buddy, and get your gift card. Here, I got to shake this brother's hand. Congratulations, buddy. Happy Father's Day to you. All right, we got two more here, right? Okay. This one is Mr. Mullins. 
Um, I'm sorry, I can't read handwriting. Yeah, is what? Mullins? They here? Come on up, my brother. Trying to decide what to do with all these registration cards. God bless you, sir. Happy Father's Day to you. Yes, sir. All right, and we have one additional one that we're going to do in this service because we have someone who actually made a donation in honor of their late father. And just, just what an honor. And so this one is a very generous gift card as well, and it's going to go to, hope I can read this one, Keith Fraunfelter. Come on up, buddy. God bless you, brother. And there you are, ma'am. Would you thank Miss Caitlin for me? I feel like eating barbecue. Must be Father's Day. All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, go with me. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with scriptures, divide it up into two halves Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right. You're going to go to the Old, and you're going to go to the next to the last book called Zechariah. This, uh, this should give you a, a sense of how close we're coming to the end of this series together. Uh, the last two weeks now of a series that lasted 12 weeks, each in turn covering a prophet, one of what the scholars call the minor prophets in our Old Testament. And the theme of this has been just simply one word, turn. Because that's what repentance means. It means to turn from one way of doing things, one way of thinking about something, one way of being stubborn and kind of trapped in my own mind and my own world and turning and, and beginning to do things the right way. And the minor prophets give us a multiplicity of ways to do that. And today we're going to look at another one. Uh, I think it's important for me to point out a connection between this week and last week. Last week's prophet was Haggai, this week's prophet is Zechariah, and these two are contemporaries. I, th I think it's important that we understand that. Scripture, no part of Scripture is in a vacuum. It's all kind of layered in with the rest of it. But these, these two prophets that we covered the last week and this week actually knew each other. They prophesied at roughly the same time. One of them, as I mentioned last week, was a relatively old man. Haggai was in his mid to late 80s when he prophesied. Zechariah, by contrast, is a young man. He's called a young man in chapter 2, verse 4 of this prophecy, and most of the, the studies on this would point him at around the age of 17 when he started to preach God's Word. So you've got, man, that's very, very old if you talk about last week. Or now you're thinking that's very, very young. And his call is to turn from doubt to hope. So we've got another issue here with doubt. We had that already with Habakkuk, if you remember that prophet. He struggled with, with a lot of doubt. And the thing is, everybody struggles with doubt, don't they? At some point in our life, we're going to struggle with it. Scripture is full of people who, who battle doubt. And we, we see most of the time the end of their story, and it's really encouraging to us. I can remember probably 10-plus years ago standing on a mountain right off the coast of the Indian Ocean where a group of Hindu fundamentalists in the, at, toward the end of the first century speared to death one of Jesus' first disciples for simply being faithful to proclaim the gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. And you don't get much more ends of the earth in the first century than the Indian Ocean. And it may surprise some of you to realize that disciple's name was Thomas. 
So maybe that encourages you a little bit today. That that's how his life ended in, what do you mean, speared to death? How's that encouraging? Well, faithfulness, obedience, no matter what the cost, he, he did that. But we also, you know, most of us, we don't know that because that's actually that story's not in the Bible, even though it's true. What we know of Thomas is in the Bible and recorded for us, and he's known as the, yeah, he's, he's the doubter. Everybody doubts. And if you don't think you do or you say you don't, you're either in denial or you're just not being honest with yourself. And there are all kinds of things that induce doubt in our life. There can be tragedy that brings about doubt and you wonder what God's up to. There can be trauma and you wonder what God's up to. There can be other people in your life that you thought you could count on and then all of a sudden you feel betrayed and you don't know. But, but here's what I've discovered is one of the biggest causes of doubt, just plain old fatigue. I'm just tired. You ever been like, I'm just done. Like this happened, then this happened, then that happened. It's, it's one discouragement after another discouragement after another discouragement, and I'm just hollowed out. Like I got, I got nothing left. And, and Haggai, when, when, he, when we looked at his prophecy last week, he was confronting people who allowed their fatigue to be an excuse for sloth. All right, you're being lazy, hitch up your britches, so to speak, and let's get to work. Zechariah doesn't deny that, but he's going to go one layer deeper. And when he digs, what he discovers is that the people of God are spiritually worn out. That weariness then brought on doubt. That doubt then brought a disposition that had them wondering something that probably a few people in front of me this morning are wondering. Is it worth it? I mean, is it really worth it for some of us? That happens every time we try to lose weight. Yeah, you get on a diet and exercise plan, you're faithful to it, you start to see the weight coming off, you envision yourself looking like Schwarzenegger in his 40s, not now, right? But, but you get what I'm saying? You, you envision yourself looking like some, some Sports Illustrated model or something like that, and you, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm headed there, I'm headed there, I'm doing good, I'm being faithful, and then all of a sudden you hit a, a plateau. And you get three or four weeks into that plateau and you go, nothing I eat tastes good and it's not doing me a dadgum bit of good. And you wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? For others, it's more serious than plateaued weight. Maybe it's a plateaued career or a plateaued marriage or a plateaued relationship. The people of Israel in Zechariah's time, they were plateaued in their relationship with God and their commitment to the mission that he had assigned them. And in this case, it was the rebuilding of the temple. And so if you were here last week, you remember Haggai reminds them, there's work to be done. All right, so that, that's the baseline of all this. All right, Haggai's message is not discounted by Zechariah's message. The two complement each other. But it's built on the foundation of Haggai. Sometimes there's work to be done, there's a job to be done, and you got to get shaved, showered, and out the door, even if you ain't feeling it, simply because it must be done. Amen? So you just, you just get with it. All right? Don't be laying on the couch. Don't be moaning and groaning about what could have been. Get to work. Haggai reminds them, my feelings are no excuse for not doing what I know I'm responsible for doing. But then right on the heels of that comes Zechariah. Zechariah is in our Bibles to complement that message with a higher one. Even when you don't feel it, you need to know there's purpose and meaning behind what God has called you to do. There's purpose and there's meaning in that. And, and for Zechariah, that purpose and meaning surrounded the coming of the Messiah. 
And so the exiles at this point, they've been back in their land for about 20 years, and, and they need this message because they came back with high hopes. Right? You ever started a, a new job? You went off to college? You went off to some new adventure? And you're like, this is going to be great. All right, I think it was James Tillis was the, the amateur boxer that uh, got off the, the bus in Dallas, Texas, and he's holding two cardboard suitcases. This is back, whoa, mid-20th century. And he looks up at the city of Dallas, those skyscrapers. There weren't nearly as many of them then as there are now. And he set those down, and he, he, he took a moment to just kind of take in the city. And he said, I am going to conquer this city. And then he looked down, and somebody stole stolen both his suitcases. <laughs> you ever felt like that? Like this is something like, boom, another, another shot to the gut. That's what these people are feeling. For one, they're living back in the land of their ancestors, and they, but they are still under the rule of Cyrus. Cyrus is king of Persia. Cyrus on the international scene is preparing to go to war with Egypt. And if you're preparing to go to war, just like today, you've got to raise an army. And then when you raise that army, you've got to feed them. You've got to clothe them. You've got to equip them. You've got to train them. And, and it takes money to do that. And that means, among other things, taxes were incredibly high in Israel. Anybody feeling that pain? 20 years into the return, there is little evidence of the kind of transformation these people had anticipated. And now they got Haggai coming at them, yelling at them, and they're tired. And into that environment comes Zechariah with a powerful message. We begin to see the guts of that in, in verse 8 of chapter 1. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, just a light reddish, and white horses. And, and then I said, what are those, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man was standing among the myrtle trees, answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. I want you to think about how those words would have landed on the original recipients. They're tired. They don't see what they thought they would see at this point. And what they hear in the prophet is a future where he says, we have patrolled the earth and all the earth remains at, here's the word everybody who's tired wants to hear, rest, rest. To weary people, the young prophet says, I've seen a vision from the Lord that says when the time is right, God is going to act. And he's not just going to do it on behalf of our own nation, but through Messiah that comes to our nation, he's going to reorder the entire universe. So you need to keep walking and serving and being faithful as if you believe that's true. That's Zachariah. This is one of my favorites out of all 12 because into that, that spiritual fatigue and doubt, Zechariah brings hope. And the ultimate hope says Messiah is coming. In fact, he's going to make his appearance at the very temple that Haggai's been yelling at you about. This is why the old man's been yelling at you. It's important you get this thing erected. This is where he's going to come. And the structure of this involves two primary sections. Chapters 1 through 8 outline section 1, and it's, it's multiple visions of a, of a restored Jerusalem. We see sort of the climax of that in chapter, verse 20 of chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. 
Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Not only, in other words, will the nation be restored, she will move from fast to feasting to the extent that other nations will come to her to seek the favor of the Lord. And then section 2, chapters 9 to 14, gives us the purpose for that restoration. Messiah is coming. And it's important for us to understand how Zechariah's message kind of fits together. Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, he's a British Anglican theologian, talks to us about the three horizons of Old Testament prophecy, right? And so you think of, think of the term, you know, like if you're going home today, you've got like one horizon, which is your windshield, and you've got another one that's the end of your hood, and then you've got that third one that's as, like as far out as you can see. Think of Old Testament prophecy as, as sort of existing in those three layers. Level one is the, the context in which the prophet spoke. That's my windshield, right? This is where I'm sitting in the cab right now. Uh, level number two Horizon number two is the messianic application of their words. So Messiah's coming, and this history fits with what God is doing through history to bring Messiah in the world. And then there's that, as far as I can see, an even further horizon, an eventual universal reign of God. And one of the more encouraging things about this prophet is we see all three in Zechariah. And so there's a lot of overlap between his own day, the first coming of Messiah, the second coming of Messiah. And, and, and sometimes scholars get into arguments with each other about which of these is which, right? Which of these three is, is this particular verse? I, I want to cut through all of that today and just encourage you, all three fit together. The whole reason that debate exists is because we recognize they're, they're all together and that the center and circumference of all of that is the person and the work of Jesus. That, that's what Christians have believed. Zechariah doesn't mention him by name, but he does mention Messiah, and he mentions Messiah in such minute detail that Jesus can be the only logical fulfillment. That's true not only of Zechariah, but for the rest of the Old Testament corpus. Brothers and sisters, there are 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfills every last one of them. And so here's the big idea. Our doubt is defeated and our hope is restored when everything we do, even when we're not feeling it, is in worship of Messiah. All right, so here, here's what I want you to see. Six predictions about that Messiah in Zechariah, three encouragements to restore your hope and to help you move from doubt to hope. All right, let's take these in turn. Prediction number one, he will come in humility. Chapter 9, verse 9, Re rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, a couple of things I want you to see. Number one is that Matthew records for us the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, 
and he will send them at once. So Zechariah 9, you have prophecy. Matthew 21, you have the fulfillment of that prophecy. But there's something more remarkable here, and it's in this fact that Jesus is basically asking his disciples to go get something that belongs to somebody else. Think about how crazy this sounds for just a moment. It would be like I told one of you, hey, out in the north parking lot, there's this gorgeous Dually F-150. I need you to go hotwire that thing for me, get it cranked, bring it around to the south parking lot, and I'll take it off your hands. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, like security, they, they roam out there. One of our security people comes, just tell them the Lord needs it, and it'll be okay. Doesn't that sound nuts? All right? But let me tell you something that's more nuts than that. It's actually embedded in this prophecy. Warrior kings don't ride donkeys. They ride horses. Salvation and righteousness are going to come to you, not in somebody who feels like he's got a flex, he's got a bust at his chest, but somebody who already has all the power, and the proof of that is he comes in humility. He rides on a donkey. What an amazing Savior this is. He comes in humility. And, and, and here's the application, I think. We're going to see this. As you struggle with doubt and continue with sort of the day-to-day, you wonder if it's, if it's all worth it. You need to understand that experience is actually far more messianic than the euphoric kind of things that we sometimes feel in this room. And listen, God shows up in this room. God's presence is real in this room. I thank him for it. But the, the greater soul growth actually happens in the cubicle, out on the construction floor, on the sales floor, in the small group, at the kitchen counter, at the dining room table, in those other. Listen, I'm not telling you you don't need this, all right? Come back, you better come back next week. I'm saying that the greatest moves of God and the greatest soul growth actually happens in the mundane times and in the hard times. While I'm going on sabbatical, you're going to get to hear from Dr. Chuck Lawless, one of my good friends. He's a dean at Southeastern Seminary, a noted scholar throughout the evangelical world in the area of spiritual warfare. And one of the things you're going to learn from Dr. Lawless is, and some of you will get this and some of you won't, if you don't, I'm sorry that I don't have time to unpack it. Spiritual warfare is not a Carmen song. Okay? Yeah, I'm going to pull out my six-shooter and shoot the devil. I'm going to go over to that witch's house, and I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus. I mean, that is not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. You you get this? It's I'm going to do the right thing thing in the power of the Holy Spirit in the most ordinary mundane times. And that's when God's going to be powerful. That's when I'm going to watch him at work. If for no other reason, then I'm going to get to the other side of it and go, how in the devil did I do that? How on earth did I persevere through that? My gosh, how did that happen? I I know my own heart. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I wanted to do in that situation. The power of God. Right? And how does that start? It's, it starts by, by coming into every situation and every conflict and every kind of environment with the same humility as our Savior. Messiah is coming in the same mundane, ordinary fashion as the life you are currently experiencing. So your ordinary is not so ordinary. He comes in humility. Here's prediction number two. See, humility doesn't mean weakness. He will come in victory. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. 
and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Like, what does he do? Like, is he, is he, is he lock and load his AR? Like, is, he, is it a military strategy? He speaks, and it comes about. And that rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Whatever you're experiencing right now will end. The war will end. And, and he's not just talking, guys, about the one that Cyrus is preparing to fight with Egypt that is the reason the Israelites' taxes are so high right now. All war will end. All struggle will end. Everything in life that brings plateau and suffering and everything that fuels doubt, a future is coming where none of that's going to exist. All because Messiah came, both in humility and in victory. Here's prediction number three. He will come in faithfulness. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That probably sounds like a strange saying to you and me. That's actually a reference to the story of Joseph. The Israelites would have been very familiar with this. Genesis 37 to, to the end of the book, something they would have recognized. They're, they're down in a pit like their ancestor Joseph. They don't see a way out. They don't know how they're going to get out. And may, maybe some of you are in a, in a place like that right now. The answer is the blood of my covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two persons. And in the ancient world, it was a solemn agreement. Whatever legal contract you've ever signed in your life, from buying or selling a home to if you've ever been party in a lawsuit to anything, those are very serious signatures, right? They're nothing compared to what the scriptures speak about when it speaks about the covenant. But here's the thing, covenant still got broken because people were broken. And the Lord is speaking through Zechariah here and he says, this, this is, here's Here's the hope I want you to see. You can, you can know that in my humility there will be victory because I am faithful because this is the blood of my covenant. I got a, there's a new one coming. Jeremiah 31 would tell me that. Why is that? Because every time I make one with Israel, they break it. All right? Every time I make one, and it wouldn't matter if it was Israel or the French, when I make a covenant, with human people, with fallen human people, eventually they're going to break it. But this is my covenant, and it is sealed in blood. Why do we have confidence in that? Because God, we are told in the Scriptures, is not a man that he should lie. He will never break a promise to you and to me. It's, it's never going to happen. And that's where, that's where we've got to place our hope. My, my hope rests in a God who is always faithful and who through the very blood of that coming Messiah predicted is going to keep every promise to me. Here's prediction number four. He will come with security. Verse 12 of chapter 9. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. I'm going to take you from your own version of that, that waterless pit that Joseph was down in, and I'm going to bring you back to a fortified place, and I'm going to do it all by rendering your enemies and mine impotent. Now, if you, look, if you read most scholars around this section, 
they believe these are references to future kingdoms that haven't even risen to power yet. So the Lord is saying not, not only this, this coming war between, between Persia and Egypt, but every single future empire that rises and then sets is under my control. And if any of them come against my people, I will eventually render them impotent. Words spoken 200 years before Alexander the Great is even born. And yet, he mentions Greece specifically. Don't, don't you, have any, you don't even see them yet. You don't even know what's coming. They're going to be a power in the world. But they're not going to harm you. Not without answering to me. And not without ultimately coming to nothing. I will render them impotent. Now, now why is that important? Because it's hard to have hope if you don't even feel safe, right? And it's harder in our world to feel safe than it used to be. I, I think that's generally true. Now, I'm not one of these of you. If, you. if you're new to the covenant family, maybe this is your first week, welcome. I am not one of these doom and gloom guys that tells you that we used to be this wonderful culture where everything was wonderful and people rode unicorns and, and now we're all horrible people and I don't even recognize them. There's a sense in which, in a lot of ways, this culture is a lot better than it was half a century ago, a century ago, two centuries ago. But there's also a sense in which things are a lot worse. All right, you, you can't buy into polarized narratives and really have a full understanding of what the Bible teaches about the, the image of God and human sin. So, so one of the things I think is probably getting worse is we just don't feel as safe as we used to. Movie theater, school, every time you step into one now, you, you kind of wonder, don't you? What, what, you know, somebody going to come in here with a gun and shoot up the whole place? International relationships, what's going on with, with all of that, toxic political polarization. And by the way, I'm not just talking about the United States of America. This is, this is happening. The same kind of stuff we see right here, right now, between the right and the left, is happening in Brazil, Chile, Bolivia, Turkey, Israel. A divided world, okay? Anybody been paying attention to, you know, I don't know, Russia, China? A potential new Cold War is emerging. So you might have actually legitimate reason to recognize kind of a lack of safety that maybe you felt before. <laughs> and some of you are sitting there going, well, you know, Pastor, I hadn't read the news in three weeks. I wasn't aware of it, but I am now. Thanks, <laughs> Pastor. Yeah. But oftentimes our greatest sense of security that we can only find in the Lord comes when we first and foremost actually realize we're far more vulnerable than we think we are. We're far more out of control of things than we actually think we are. And, and for some of you, it's not even the international scene. It's just life is just out of control. And the Lord speaks and reminds us in Zechariah, the security and safety you seek, that sense of hope, it comes from me. You've got to remember, especially when stuff happens you can't control, I rule over all of this, and you are my people, and I am not against you. Don't, don't worry about another country. 
or another person, so long as you have taken stock of whether you're on the right side of the Lord. Right? He, he's the only one that really matters, and this is Zechariah's message. When he comes, he will bring security. Number five, prediction number five, he will rule in permanence. Verse 14 of chapter 9, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine to be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is a picture of perpetual victory, security. Like when, when Messiah finally brings, so this is the third horizon. It's not the windshield, it's not the end of the hood. It's beyond even what you can see. And, and he says there's a future coming, and th this I think is in your future and in my future. It's a temporal picture in Zechariah of a victorious army that merely foreshadows a greater victory when God's people will forever flourish. There's a day coming. When you won't suffer anymore. Isn't that good news? You won't suffer anymore. This troubles the world. I remember being somewhat shocked not long ago reading an interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, and here's the thing I, I mean, every time you see him at any point in his life, he's always, you know, he's always got that big grin, those large teeth, and usually there's a cigar, and there's just, he, he just, He's just bigger than life. And so, so this is why I was, I was a little shocked to read this, this interview because he, he was very passionate and very angry in this interview. And it was when he was asked about death. And this is a quote from him. Word for word, except for one that I will not repeat in church. Okay, I've always been extremely angry at the idea of death. It's such a waste I know it's inevitable, but it's inevitable. But what the is that? Your whole life you work, try to improve yourself, save money, invest wisely, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's over. Death angers me more than anything. And after reading that interview, I thought, what happened to make a guy react so viscerally like that that normally is just kind of at ease all the time? And I... So I, I did a little research, and I discovered something I did not know before about this actor. He lost his brother in a car accident at the age of 24. That trauma and that tragedy was just, and it's still eating him alive. And, and here's what you need to know. Death and suffering angers your God, too. So he did something about it. And what he did in the person and work of Jesus will one day find its complete fulfillment at the end of the age. What the prophet here describes as a new, permanent normal, characterized by the triumphant joy of God's people. And that means that a sixth prediction is also true. He will come bringing hope. Verse 17, for how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. It's a symbolic description of the eternal favor of God on his people. The whole of Zechariah's message is that eternity 
is about to enter into human history. And this brings us back to their, his encouragement alongside of Haggai's. Let's get this temple finished. Because God's people have returned to the land he promised their father Abraham. And the promise even that he made to our first parents in the garden. Genesis 3 verse 15. All of that, Zechariah says, is about to be fulfilled right in your midst. And even that moment is just the beginning. The exiles have returned. But the one for whom they are rebuilding this temple will eventually usher in an ultimate return home. That moment is getting closer. Zechariah can sense it. He wants God's people to sense it. So what's that mean? How do do you get restored hope in moments of doubt? I, I think that That may be the central thrust, at least in how we make faithful application to Zechariah here. How do you do that? Are you tired? Yeah. Don't you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to out yourself. But I I just want to hear who in here is tired. And I don't I don't just mean tired like the kind of tired that sleep will fix. I mean the kind of tired that you sleep 10, 12, 13 hours and you get up and you're still fatigued and you're still worn out and you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Do you sometimes wonder if your faith is really worth it? Here's some action steps you can take rooted in this prophet when that kind of doubt and fatigue overwhelm you. All right? So three encouragements. Number one, stay humble. All right? I've been there. I've been there. You know, one of the things the Lord has had to work on me really hard about for pretty much all of my adult life is anger. I can pop off. I can be really, I mean, it it just, God by his spirit has been incredibly gracious to me. God in his grace has put other men in my face. God has helped me. God, God has taken me through crucibles to teach me how to handle that kind of stuff better, but I, but I still struggle with it. And, and here's, here's what I've come to realize. And my wife, bless her heart, probably wishes I'd realize it more. Um, but she, she, too, is a very, very patient woman. And, and not toward her, but just toward a circumstance, toward somebody. You just, you ever been here? Because your pastor has. That's it. I'm done. You been there? I'm not doing this anymore. I give up. I was training to be an electrician. I never wanted to do this. And on occasion, early in ministry, I would say to my wife, I I would point to her for a moment, but she she doesn't have a microphone, but she could quote what I would say to her. I'm just going to go back to pulling wire. All right. In whatever world you work in, maybe you are pulling wire and you're like, trust me, you don't want to do that. Let me tell you about all the frustrations in my life right now. Here's what I had to realize. When I get to that point emotionally, what I'm essentially saying is I don't, I don't have the faith to believe that God can see me through this. I don't have the faith to believe he called me to do this. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm basically making this all about me, which means I'm going to miss the best of what he has for me. I, I, and here's, here's what I'm saying. When I, when I pop off like that, it's a lack of humility on my part. 
This great hope begins with a ride through Jerusalem on a donkey. All right? There's a reason Shrek is funny. It's because we don't think donkeys are glamorous. We think they're hilarious. Because they are. Festus in Gunsmoke. So many of you won't even know what that means. Rode a donkey. It was part of comedy. What could be more humiliating? Even in our own day, Jesus was giving himself over to something even more humiliating he knew was going to come. Even five days later. That's humility. My friend Steve Besner at Houston Northwest Church in Texas puts it this way. He says, you know, sometimes I ask myself, if I only had a week to live how would I invest that time knowing that I had that time? And it occurred to me one day, Jesus knew, and he washed feet. That's what he did. Humility. I'm not telling you any of you that to put you down. I'm saying there, there's the hope. Humility is the willingness of me to lay down my desire for self-mastery and so I, to, to be willing to not get back to a place of certainty, I, I hate ambiguity. Ask my staff. It's one of the ways I've had to apologize to them. Like I had somebody, nobody around here wants to make you mad. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? That was really helpful, right? That response was really helpful. And, um, and, and I realized it, it was a lack of certainty that wasn't anybody's fault. It just was what it was. But we want to get back to that. God does not want me to know everything. He wants me to trust him in everything. So humility in that moment, it's an act of self-denial that recognizes doubt as a lifelong, ongoing struggle. And it says, when you're humble, you're saying, my faith is worth the struggle. That's what you're saying. So stay humble. Number two, stay faithful. So Haggai and Zechariah had essentially the same message. All right, get to work. Haggai's emphasis is you're using what was intended to build the Lord's temple to panel your own houses. And so, so it was a guilt trip, basically. But, but it was an earned one. Sometimes when you tell people that, that you make them feel guilty, they, they kind of had that coming, right, because of what they did. Zechariah's focus, though, is this. If you do the right thing, a reward is coming that is beyond your wildest dreams. This isn't just about the short term, right? I can't promise you immediate relief. I can beg you, please just don't settle for what is easier in the short term. When Churchill became prime minister of Great Britain, two weeks after coming, becoming prime minister, he was faced with 340,000 of his own troops trapped by the Nazis and an entire European continent almost that had been taken over by the Germans. And it was out of that crucible moment of difficulty that he coined this phrase that we've all at some point or another heard, and some of you don't even know that it originated with Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going. Just, just keep pushing. Do, do, as Elizabeth Elliot used to say, the next right thing. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stay faithful to what you know God is calling you to do. So, so be humble. Stay faithful. Here's the final one. Stay hopeful. Zechariah says to his people, I know you can't see this. It's coming. 
You must believe it. The author of Hebrews reminds us, doesn't he? Faith is the, the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things I do not see. That's kind of the essence of it. Isn't it? Faith is not, you know, it's, it's funny, my, my agnostic atheist friends that, that, that ridicule faith, listen, it takes some strength to have faith. Because you've got to operate outside. Like you, you ever heard that? You have somebody that doesn't, you know, or they think religion is harmful, or they think it's somebody. Well, it's just a crutch. I, I don't ever see. I, Jesus never offered anybody a crutch. He offered them a cross. This faith. Now I can't speak. I mean, my Muslim friends would have to speak to Islam. My Jewish friends would have to speak to Jewish. I, I can speak to Christian faith. There ain't nothing about it, if it's the real thing, that's a crutch. People don't follow Jesus for that reason. So you've got to stay hopeful. When you, hear, when you hit a spiritual plateau and connecting with God seems like it's road or mundane and, or maybe tragedy strikes, I mean, any time that maybe you or I are tempted to ask, is it really worth it, you persevere because of hope, a certain assurance that God keeps his promises. He is not a man that he should lie. You know, one of the things I love about living in the 21st century is wide access to the kind of technology that even if you go back 20 years was only available to airline pilots and the government. I am speaking of the global positioning system, right? GPS, for those of you who don't even know what that meant, right? GPS, what does that mean? You know, we're, we're, the, we're the age, we're the generation of the acrostic now. KFC, by the way, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I just blowed y'all's minds, didn't I? Like, you didn't even know. But I, I'm talking about the, the GPS. Now, here's, here's what I love about the GPS. Even as your pastor, I still travel sometimes. Going to San Francisco here in a few weeks. I got the privilege of speaking to a, a foundation out there and that's working in partnership with our One America partners. And so if I get in the middle of downtown San Francisco and I get lost, man, that's a great gift from a good God, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't have to worry. You don't have to stop and ask for directions. You don't have to worry about, you know, maybe it's accidentally ended up in the wrong part of town, not been able to get out. It, here's what I love most about it, though. It's a, it's a little button that's got a house on it. What's that mean? Did you know... No matter where I am on planet Earth, if I've got a signal, I can hit that button and I'll get guided home. I love that. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. That's the call of Zechariah to these people. Now, don't, don't get confused here. Building the temple is not building their home. It is building the positioning system. Because in that positioning system, just a couple of centuries from this moment will appear a Messiah, and he will personally take us home. That's the promise of Zechariah. And this morning, I want to ask you, I want you to know that that, that, same, that same Messiah is the path to your home. Are you ready for him? The two greatest needs of every person, to be right with God and to know what happens to you when you die. This Messiah that Zechariah speaks of has come and he has resolved both of those and you can be right with him this morning if you have faith in him. Your sins, my sins, have alienated us from him. 
But he sent Jesus to take that sin on himself. Your faith in him is what makes you right and it provides you an eternal home. And that hope, Zechariah tells us, is just as sure as I'm standing here. In fact, it's more sure than the fact that I'm standing here right now. You can be ready today. I pray that you will be. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for a message of hope. That, Lord, you're not just a taskmaster God who tells us to get to work, but you also, in in complimentary fashion, while rightfully sometimes putting your foot in our hind parts when we're lazy, pointing us towards something that is good and righteous and reminding us of your promise. And so, Lord, I pray now that your people would respond to this in whatever way your Spirit is guiding them, most especially for those who may not know Jesus who need to come to him today in repentance and faith. Lord, help us to guide those people to the positioning system so that you can lead them to their home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.